Welcome to the Education of a Financial Planner, where we look at the major concepts in financial planning through the lens of two quant investors who are learning the ropes of the planning process and how to help clients achieve their long-term goals. Learn along with us as experienced financial planner Matt Ziegler helps us understand the most important financial planning concepts that impact all of us and how we can apply them to achieve the best outcomes in our financial lives. In each episode, we will work through one major financial planning concept from the ground up and learn how we can apply it in the real world. From retirement to college savings to taxes to estate planning, we will cover a wide range of topics that apply to each of our everyday lives. We hope you will join us in our learning journey. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. Matt Ziegler is managing director at Sunpoint Investments. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. All right, guys, today we're going to continue to talk about uh, retirement planning and planning for and in and around retirement. And one of the most important questions that um, a lot of people have is how much can I safely withdraw from my retirement savings without running out of money? It's an important question uh, relating to financial security and lifestyle in retirement. We talked in a previous episode about the 4% withdraw, withdrawal rule, which is you know withdrawing 4% of your portfolio each year and then adjusting that for inflation. Um, and while that's a good rule of thumb as a starting point, it comes with certain limitations and it may not be the best fit for everyone. And I think that's something that we talked about in that episode. Um, but with that, we wanted to focus today's conversation around the concept of variable withdrawal rates in retirement. And um, Matt, I think we're going to try to make this as exciting as possible with some maybe stories of actual ways that, you know, variable withdrawal rates have worked for certain types of clients and investors. But maybe to start, um, I want to hear how you sort of think about this and maybe what some of the issues would be with a fixed withdrawal rate strategy. Just like we talked about in the Monte Carlo episode, which these are super important concepts and super important things in the toolbox for any professional planner that you might work with or for those of us in the profession. But they're, they're really academically dense. And that's not to say the academic density isn't important, but it can be really overwhelming for both a do-it-yourselfer or even candidly for professionals where we get into some really complicated stuff. So with Monte Carlo, I gave you the three Montes on how I think about Monte Carlo analysis. I will propose to you, as we talk about withdrawal strategies, my top three Kellys. So if I can, I've got my top three Kellys for you here. So the first Kelly is John Kelly. And I'm sure you guys are familiar with this. Do you guys use the Kelly criterion in your work at all with Validia? Yes. Yes, we're familiar with that. Okay. So John Kelly, for people who aren't familiar, brilliant guy, Bell Labs, little bit of a wild card. So stories about him and like his military service, flying planes under bridges and doing some other slight craziness. He gets to Bell Labs, befriends this guy, Claude Shannon. Claude Shannon, literally the person who figures out how to turn ones and zeros into now cat videos. And of course, being John Kelly and the guy that he is, he looks at some of Claude Shannon's math and goes, you know what this would be awesome for? is gambling. <laughs> so what's crazy is he writes this paper for Bell Labs in the early to mid 50s and basically explains this idea of how much should you place on a bet if you think the bet is a sure thing, but you don't know it is a sure thing. And there's this great story where he's betting on 
the quiz show, like the TV show they made the movie about. And he's going, if it airs on the East Coast and then three hours later airs on the West Coast and we know people are betting on the outcome of the show on the West Coast and somebody calls us from the East Coast and says, this is the contestant who wins. And then we call our West Coast bookie and we place a bet. Well, how do we place our odds? Because, and this will connect back to withdrawal strategies. Like if I bet everything I own, but the guy on the East Coast gives me a bum tip, like I'm out of money. And we talk about withdrawal strategies, this is what we're talking about. How do we understand not to take a bum tip? How do we understand not to make a bad bet that exhausts our bankroll? And so the first Kelly, uh, John Kelly, this is what it's all about. How do we not blow up our bankroll uh, on one bum bet? Now, second favorite Kelly is Jelly Roll Kelly, which do either of you guys, uh, I can't connect this one to Jay-Z, but I can connect it to James Taylor. Do you know the Jelly Roll Kelly song? No, and I'm a big James Taylor fan too, so I do uh, not. One of my favorite James Taylor songs, popularized on Sesame Street, which is probably where you're going to find Link. But uh, basically, his daughter comes to him with a poem. She's like five years old. He's like, this should be a song. And then it becomes a song. So it's a really cool dad story too. But the song's about this person, again, imagined by a five-year-old. And Jelly Roll Kelly basically really loves toast. And he's married to this woman or with this woman named Jenny Mahenny, and she really likes to make tea. And the whole song is just about the simple things and preserving the simple things in life so that you get your enjoyment out of them. Great, great song. Banging tuba background beat. Can't recommend it enough. Jelly Roll Kelly, James Taylor, Sesame Street. Check that out. But this idea is, on one hand, we have John Kelly and the betting strategy. On the other hand, we have Keep It Simple. Tea and toast, kind of all you need. Like know what that simple stuff is and don't screw that up. And that's going to be another important piece of this withdrawal strategy. The last one, real world, the goddess herself, Miss Kelly Clarkson, Mrs. Kelly Clarkson now. The reason she's our third most important Kelly is because life changes. And we're going to talk about withdrawal strategies and how to spend money. But here you have a girl who comes from relatively nothing gets famous on TV, and now evolves this career in multiple iterations. When we talk about withdrawal strategies, nobody's life is just one chapter that just goes on consistently forever. So I'm going to land this on fixed withdrawal strategy and what the problems are where you started, and I'm going to land it there with Kelly Clarkson for a second. If it was just you go on American Idol and you have a hit song, and then next year you have another hit song, and next year you have another hit song, and you just mint millions forever or you just know exactly what money's coming in the door, then great, a fixed withdrawal strategy would be perfect because everything is known and everything is easy. But the reality is life is messy. Stuff goes good, then stuff goes not so good, then stuff goes okay, and your withdrawal strategy, spending money in retirement, probably needs to adapt to all those things. So you noted that, this, that what we're going to get into later can be a little bit dense academically, and you'll probably try to bring us down from our, our quant nature of uh, getting into all the in incredible details of all this stuff. But before we do that, I want to get back to the, the main thing people care about here, which is how can I make my money last in retirement? And so can you just talk at a high level about how a variable rate strategy can help me make my money last longer in retirement? Yeah, and let's connect this back to the Kellys too. So like a fixed rate withdrawal strategy where I'm just trying not to run out of money. So maybe I just want to take out, I need $50,000 a year. And how do I make that last for my lifetime? Well, that's my Jelly Roll Kelly example. That's like your life better be friggin' simple. It better be jelly on toast with some tea 
and like then we can really plan around it because we just have a big piggy bank that we're hopefully spending money about in a relatively modest way. Now, as soon as your life gets more complicated than that, we kind of need the John Kelly stuff. We need some odds because we probably have investments or market returns or some type of variable withdrawal strategy. And so when we talk about lasting, making money last through retirement, it's this balancing act between what are the simple things that I need and how do I kind of have fixed withdrawals to cover those things, might be pay for a mortgage, uh, finish paying for the mortgage, eventually the mortgage goes away hopefully, or it might be the variable withdrawal strategies which might be, oh, we're taking vacations in our 70s, but once we're in our 80s, we're not hiking up Mount Fuji anymore. So variable withdrawal strategies are basically the math that says, how do I take different amounts of money or different percentages of my money over time and still not blow myself up? So to look at, we're gonna look at some of the real world variable withdrawal strategies, but I wanna start by looking at the extreme. So the extreme opposite of a fixed rate withdrawal strategy where I take 4% of my beginning balance is I just take 4% of what I have every year. And, and I just try to make that last. And you know, the, the advantage of that obviously is definitionally that's gonna last forever because I'm just taking 4% of whatever's there. Now, obviously in the real world, there's some problems with that. So just, can you talk about the problems with that before we get into sort of the hybrids in, the, in between the two? Absolutely. So when you have a constant percentage withdrawal strategy, which is the 4% strategy or 4% rule, we did a whole episode just on this concept, is you're really borrowing the volatility of your portfolio for that percentage. And so the idea here is like if I have a million dollars and I'm taking 4% and I have my $40,000 and you're going to index this by inflation or whatever else too, but my market returns, if I have a portfolio that can go up 10 or down 10 in a year, well, there's a big difference in lifestyle than by being able to spend $50,000 in a good year and $40,000 or less in a bad year. So the, the constant percentage withdrawal strategies, like the hard and fast 4%, you're always going to be susceptible to the swings in your investment portfolio. And that can be a lot for people to wrap their heads around because most people's annual spend or their annual salary, if they're coming from that type of life, it's a lot closer to stable. Constant percentage withdrawal strategies can be a lot more volatile if you're not breaking apart your expenses. Yeah, I can assume it's very hard to say to a client, oh, 2008 just happened, you know, cut your spending by half. Um, you know, that, that's probably very difficult for someone to do, you know, unless it's someone who has a lot of money elsewhere, that can be very, very difficult, I assume. You can assume correctly on that. <laughs> and most importantly, this is where it's like in the real world, saying this 4% strategy is a really good, useful starting conversation, but then understanding the 4% might be correct as an on average approach. So over five or 10 years, this might be on average what we spend, but knowing I'm gonna have years where I'm way above and years where I'm maybe not way below, but we're gonna fluctuate, fluctuate around that spend to average out to it. In our 4% rule episode, we talked about the idea of evaluating it based on failure rates. So you know, do I have a 90% chance I'm gonna be successful? I was reading something by Wade Fowle like in preparation for this, and he sort of talked about why maybe variable rate strategies, we don't use failure rate to evaluate them. So can you kind of talk about his framework to, to evaluate these things? Because I know we're gonna talk about a bunch of them uh, you know, going forward here. So what I love about this, and I'm gonna put almost, I think it's a more nuanced point <clears throat> onto what Wade Fowle's getting across when he describes this. So he calls this, with the failure rate stuff, you'll see this XYZ strategy. And it's effectively, you have X percent um, uh, you have an X percent chance that your spending is going to fall below a Y dollar value 
uh, by some Z year of retirement. So basically, this is the nuance. He's saying there's periods of time in your retirement. So let's use Kelly Clarkson's career, but think of it as a retirement arc, right? You got the good times, the peak earning years, then you retire into that. Then you have this weird donut transition before social security and RMDs kick in or something. You've got these noticeable chapters on your calendar. And you've got a different uh, budget that you got a cash flow problem to solve for in each of these chapters. What Wade Fow is basically saying with the failure rates is you should look at failure rates in each of those chapters as you expect to move through them. So it's this concept of like, what's the minimum amount of money I need left as I move through these? So I built an addition onto the house and then the market collapsed. Like, do I have to adjust my spending now in the next calendar year or the next part of my, uh, the next chapter as I move through this retirement window? Because the failure rate shouldn't just be run out of money. It should be what indicates we need to course correct in real time based on where we should be at this stage of our journey. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to look at it. Because, yeah, I, I would think it, there are a lot of flaws in looking at retirement as like this one big blob or this one big entity. Like looking at it based on what's going to happen in, in the major turning point seems like it, it really makes a lot of sense. You got to take it. And that's, that's, again, this Kelly Clarkson, like think about it. That career is not a straight line. It's all over the place. And there's a place where things settle in uh, for periods, but for temporary periods every time. So when we solve for retirement, a 4% rule or whatever strategy we put on at the beginning as we talk through it, it's an academic exercise. It's a thought experiment, but it's not going to be the way it actually happens. And thinking in these phases can be a really, really useful way to think about what does success and failure look like in each phase can be hugely important and valuable to a client across the table from us. So we've talked about how we're not going to use 4% of the beginning balance. We've talked about the problems with using 4% of whatever the balance changes to. So now we need something in between and we need some way to figure it out. And I think these strategies are kind of classified into two different groups. One is decision rules and two is actuarial methods. So can you kind of talk about the difference between those? So our decision rules are going to fall into our first Kelly. This is like our John Kelly odd stuff. So this is why when when that Kelly dies and Claude Shannon shows the stuff to uh, probably one of our mutual shared favorites here, Ed Thorpe, and Thorpe goes on to write Beat the Dealer, and that movie 21 comes out of it, and all this great how to beat the dealer at blackjack and crack roulette tables. When we hear decision rules, I want you to think about odds. And this is where our Monte Carlo analysis on market returns and everything else comes into play. And this is to say, as we move through retirement, how do we measure expectations as they bend and shift with the real world? And decision rules are tools and tips and tricks for navigating those shifting landscapes of odds. The actuarial rules, this is cut and dry. This is uh, Jelly Man Kelly and Jenny Maheny going, we just need our, our toast, our jelly, <laughs> and our tea. The actuarial methods much like our required minimum distribution tables or think uh, life insurance actuaries or car insurance actuaries who think what are you're going to die someday so how do we figure this out this is where we deal with those failure rates potentially at different phases and that's critical because they help put this floor under what we're doing and as we zero in on this and I'm sure we're going to talk about the combination of the two like the decision rules and the actuarial methods are basically a fancy way to say we need the odds, especially for if stuff goes better than expected or worse than expected. But then we need the actuarial methods of just, look, you're going to die. 
We have to figure out how to not fail at any point along the way. And how do we blend those two together to survive the real world of retirement? You mentioned RMDs, like as a specific example of actuarial roles, can you talk a little bit more just about how those are calculated? Because that's something people will probably be pretty familiar with, especially people who have had to take them already. Yeah, so if you're below the age of 72 probably this year and 73 in the next year or so, um, you're familiar with this, or you're not familiar with this potentially. If you're above those ages, you've already started this. The IRS has required minimum distribution tables for retirement accounts. And we told this story, goes all the way back to the 1800s, Otto von Bismarck, and setting the, they had a work guarantee that turned into the need to have a retirement guarantee because you just couldn't have guys who guaranteed labor to build rail lines all over Germany. And then they got old and they got tired and they started screwing up on the jobs. Now we had to pay them to retire. And the RMD stuff comes from this. At some point, people have to retire. At some point, the IRS wants you to withdraw money from your retirement accounts. And the reality is they want you to withdraw most, if not all of the money in your lifetime, hence actuarial table, so that the IRS can collect their taxes and we don't have this multi-generational tool that extends on forever that we're building. So the RMD tables, which everybody can go to the IRS website and get, or many of your financial custodians or investment advisors have pages with the RMD tools on them. It basically says it's a formula based on some uniform expected lifetime tables where we look at if this is the value of your accounts and you have this long to leave live, this is how much the IRS says you have to take out in this, this calendar year. Lo and behold, the average amount over time, they kind of rhyme with those 4% rules on average. I assume you've probably had some pretty exciting times working with clients in your career, but probably none other than when you break out the Guyton Klingler rule. Because uh, I'm assuming the client across the table is very, very excited about you, you talking about the details of these uh, spending rule strategies. So you're probably going to bring me down off of getting into crazy details about this. But it is, it is an interesting example of how one of these decision rule strategies could actually work in the real world. So I'm wondering if maybe you could maybe just talk about this as an example of, of how these decision rules might play out. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if we can, we should totally show one of the um, Guyton Klingler uh, slides or tables just to see what some of this stuff looks like. And I am going to bring you down because I'm going to say the brilliance of these rules is they actually give a, what they call like their prosperity rule and um, uh, the capital preservation rule. Sorry, I was blanking on the other one, which are these two things we keep talking about. Like when we talk about capital preservation, we're talking about basically like the actuarial method and we're talking about funding ratios and not running out of money. When we talk about prosperity, we're talking about odd and what happens. Now, in real world practice, this is the way we actually approach this stuff. So you can set lots of rules. You can say, if the prior year's return is negative, then we should apply the standard withdrawal rule. However, if the current withdrawal rate is within 20% of the initial withdrawal rate, then we should increase the prior year withdrawal rate by the inflation rate. Now, we can have a bunch of variations. The reality is like, are you really going to sit down and do that? And is your consumption really going to sway that much with your investment returns and whatever else? No real world client that I've worked with has ever lived this way. However, how they have lived is back to our two examples of like, you want on your odds based side, you want your John Kelly thing. If stuff goes better than expected, you want the permission to go buy the beach house or the extra car or leave the extra inheritance to your kids or charity or whatever else. 
you should know if the apple gets ripe on the tree, it's okay to pick it. Conversely, you should have a plan that if the assets fall, you have some basic or preserved amount of money where you're still funded, you can still survive. You might not get the beach house. You might not get the special car. You might have to taper some of your spending a little bit, but you've still protected yourself enough that you can live your life and you still have a reasonable or high enough quality of life. So the real takeaway about the decision rules and as complicated as a uh, Guyton Klingler gets is that the middle of the road is they should allow you in boom years or good times to afford yourself some extra stuff to the degree you want them. But in bad years, you should have a withdrawal strategy that's sustainable enough to survive to go, it's 2008 and the markets are puking. I'm okay, I'm not going to run out of money. Or it's 2020 and we're at the beginning of COVID and the market's just dumped and we go, okay, this is why we did the plan. We know what our essential expenses are and where we're willing to and not willing to cut our consumption patterns. And, and I think it would be, it would probably be very important that clients have at least some idea of what's going on here. Like, like you said, if I, if I give a client this table and they're like, oh, get my calculator out, is the withdrawal rate in, within 20% of the initial withdrawal rate? All right, let's figure out what the CPI is and then let's calculate the CPI. Like if they have a general idea that, you know, all right, the market's down, I'm probably gonna have to spend less money. Here's a general way that's gonna work. That, that probably is good versus getting into all this craziness. 100%. And this is part of why you sit down maybe like once a year or multiple times a year with your advisor or planner, especially around these big events. This is why when the market dumps, you need to probably talk to your advisor if you have a big investment portfolio or it's part of your planned consumption to understand like what's going on and what's happening and why. Conversely, uh, if there's a big change in your life or something else, you want to be talking to someone and remapping this about what's going on you're starting withdrawal rate or you're starting consumption, like here's another super common example. People might go into retirement and they still have a mortgage. Odds are, unless the plan is to sustain that mortgage through death or through the end of the analysis, see this all the time. Somebody retires at say 60, still has a bit of a mortgage left, but the mortgage is paid off by 70. Or people are like, I want my mortgage paid off by the time my kid's college is paid off. And we have these things where somebody might have multiple thousands of dollars going out the door a month, but like all of a sudden that stops. And now a piece of your consumption, a fixed rate like your mortgage, disappears from the analysis. And now that money's reintroduced as cash flow into savings or consumption. That stuff goes a long, long way. And you can't just sit down and map it out on a table like this and be realistic. So we talked about decision rules, we talked about actuarial rules, and then I just want to briefly touch at the end on there, there are some approaches and, I, and again, I won't read this complicated thing that's in front of me about the Zolt rule or whatever, but there, there are some approaches that kind of bring the two of them together. So can you kind of talk about that idea? Yeah. So what's awesome about Zolt and like the most important part of Zolt is there's a, a minimal amount that you want to have. So it's a funding ratio thing in each year of retirement. So back to our Kelly Clarkson scenario. In every phase of that, no matter how steep the upward trajectory is of life or how fast it's falling and you have no clue what's happening next, Zolt basically tells us you should always have some minimum amount that you know will fund a successful retirement. Even if it's not the most exciting successful retirement, it's kind of like setting your own poverty line. And so for a lot of clients, this is what do we need to pay for the house we're living in? our healthcare expenses, and our like most basic lifestyle. And if consumption is just this, it's not that bad. 
And Zolt basically says you should measure success this way, and you can do that by having like a, a funding amount that you're measuring at each year of retirement. And I would say zoom that out and look in each chapter of your retirement. Super useful concept. It's always having that Jelly Man Kelly mentality of like no matter how good stuff is going, <laughs> I've got this look on like the simple life that would still make me happy, and I'm measuring it against it. And likewise, no matter how bad stuff is going. I know I've got this simplified version that I can streamline back to if I need to. How do you think about like using this in the real world? Like I know there, I, I looked at a Wade Fowle paper and I think he tested a bunch of these and there's, you know, this approach and that approach and this approach. And like, it must be hard as a planner to just kind of think through, like, how do I evaluate these things? And how do I figure out like going back to the client I'm directly working with? Like, how do I figure out what's right for them? So Wade Fowle's got this, this excellent piece and an excellent part of the analysis that him and Alex Merger do. And it's this longevity, lifestyle, legacy, and liquidity. I'm reading this because I wrote this down earlier because I wanted to remember. Um, so like you have your longevity and your lifestyle risks. And that's basically like, what's the lifestyle I want to lead, the money I want to consume, and then the longevity of that life itself. And this is sort of where we get into like, there's a discretionary um, component to like, longevity. There's a discretionary component to lifestyle. And there's also like the essential part of that too. And then on the other side of it with like legacy and liquidity, like if my investment portfolio is doing gangbusters, like do I care if my kids get a bigger inheritance or if I give more money to charity? And if I do, like I want to plan for that. But if it's not going that way, how do I reprioritize? It all, all, all goes back to our goals-based planning conversation. <laughs> How do I reprioritize based on what's happening in the world around me uh, and my own personal life and my family's personal life? And whenever cards I get dealt, how am I reshuffling like what I'm going to play next in tune with like what those goals and objectives are? I want to bring up the Brian Portnoy has this, this amazing concept that I think is the most central to all this. And it's this idea of funded contentment. And it's always kind of knowing, like, at a minimum, what do I need to have funded to be happy? Where's my Jellyman Kelly point? Where's my I'm willing to take the bet and take the odds of John Kelly? And how do I just make, you know, a Kelly Clarkson life where it's like, I got ups and downs, but I'm funding contentment. I found funded contentment. I found enough all along the way. And that's, as advisors, that's what we're trying to help people do. Yeah, and no, it's to your point, and especially people like me tend to get wrapped up in all this, like, which approach should I use, the Guyton Klingler or this other one? And you know, what we're trying to accomplish in the end is, is helping people achieve their goals. And, you know, and that's what all this is about. So sort of to bring it back to that, like, is it the reason I would use these variable rate strategies, right, at a high level is... I'm effectively getting a higher initial withdrawal rate here, right? So I can take more of my money at the beginning than I would with like a 4% rule thing. But the, the, the flip side of that is I have to be able to be flexible in the future in order to get that higher withdrawal rate. I mean, does that kind of sum, summarize like the math of this? 100%. So if you like, you just did the 4% withdrawal rate and you're like, okay, this is all I can take now and forever. And even if I'm adjusting the dollar amount for inflation or maybe a little bit with market returns along the way, the places is really useful and where you want to work with a professional who at least at least basically understands the academic rigor that goes into these strategies is not because you're going to perfectly execute the Guyton Klingler uh, withdrawal strategy like table that we showed you. 
The idea is, and this is super common, um, in fact, a lot, especially with, so clients or people who retire earlier, very frequently will have several years of higher expenses. And how do we make sure that like we know and some of the work Wade Faust stuff calls it like the retirement like smile, which is where it's like at the beginning of retirement, I might spend a lot more of my assets. And then in the middle of my retirement, I'm kind of spending less because maybe if I retire at 60, but I'm not turning on, all goes back to CCBS, right? Calendar, cash flow, balance sheet. So I retire at 60. Great. So now from 60 to 65, I got to pay out of pocket for healthcare for maybe myself and my spouse and it's expensive. So I know my withdrawal strategy, 60 to 65 is extra high. Tapers off a little bit about 65 because I go on Medicare and maybe I have some other stuff like some deferred comp or something that starts to kick in. 67-ish, my social security kicks in. That drives a little bit even less dependence down on my assets. And now I'm spending even less of my withdrawal piece. So notice this is very variable. But now I get into my 70s and now my RMDs start to kick on. So now I have to take money out of my retirement accounts. So now I'm spending down assets, I'm paying taxes, I'm introducing new frictions in, and I'm climbing back the other side of that mountain. Now maybe I'm not taking the trips to Italy every single year anymore, I'm not doing the great big long hike or spending big money on the new car, but maybe I've increased healthcare expenses. And this is the reality, a fixed or single withdrawal strategy does not rhyme with hopefully the rich and rewarding life I wanna do. So don't penalize yourself at the beginning of retirement and not spend some of your hard earned money. Work with somebody who can help you build the structure that you want for your funded contentment to get yourself through the retirement that you want. You saved for it, you earned it. Don't be unrealistic, but there are ways to think through how to, how to enjoy yourself. Yeah, and I, and I like the idea that these these acknowledge that life is complicated. You know, the the, the right. fact that I'm going to set four percent at the beginning, I'm never going to change anything. You know, the market could do whatever it's going to do, my spending could do whatever it's going to do, and I'm never going to change anything is probably not the greatest idea. Like this, this reflects the fact the market might go up, it might go down, I might spend more, I might spend less, and and I can adjust along the way based on that. So I, I think that's what's really cool about these. You nailed it, and that's the whole thing. Like we have these academic strategies because people thought through it, but it's it's just like comic books. Like comic books are great because we take a variable and we grabbed it and we held it constant, and we went, okay, I, I can't fly, I don't have laser vision or superhuman strength, but like Superman does. So we can hold these cons these variables constant and like see what happens in a world where Superman exists. And then one hand you get all the Superman books and on the other hand you get the Watchmen and we get all the variations. But with, with these strategies, this is what we're doing. We're going like, well, what if somebody really did follow one of these things to the T? What might life look like? And nobody has to do this. Nobody has to actually be Superman for us to learn something really insightful from it, which is life is messy, stuff gets weird, but figure out ways so that you can be happy all along the way. So I think... Um... The summary would be this. Uh, Matt outlined and gave examples of his three Kellys. Um, one, optimizing our bet sizes. That's the John Kelly, preserving life's some sort of simple pleasures, I guess, is the Jelly Roll Kelly, and then adapting to life changes, which is the Kelly Clarkson. Um, variable withdrawal strategies can adjust based on factors like performance and life expectancy. And really the goal is to help, you know, people make their money last um, and kind of not be in this rigid, like 4% rule type of 
approach. Um, we explored decision rules and actuarial methods, um, talked about the prosperity rule and the capital preservation rule. These are just other frameworks that people can research and look at um, and think about. But I think ultimately, Matt, I think it was great that Brian Portnoy uh, funded contentment, which is you know aligning our withdrawal rate strategies with our goals and our needs and realizing that you know things change throughout retirement and you have these buckets and these phases these periods and that you know it's okay to have this variable withdrawal rate sort of type of approach and for most people that's probably how it ends up shaking out anyways in the real world so that's hopefully a good summary of um this discussion we appreciate everyone watching and we will see you next time hi guys this is justin again Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant. You can follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carbono and follow Matt on Twitter at, at Cultish Creative. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. Also, if you have any ideas for topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please email us at excessreturnspod at gmail.com. We would like this to be a listener-driven podcast and would appreciate any suggestions. Thank you.